If you would turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 23. We have been studying together the life of Abraham, the father of all who believe in Jesus Christ. And we come today to the beginning of the end of that story. And there are three parts to the end of this great story. The first part is the death of Sarah, and we will look at that today and what we learn from it. And then there's the marriage of Isaac. We'll spend two weeks on that. And then finally, we will conclude with the death of Abraham, old and full of years. Uh, We'll study that together. So today, we look at the death of his wife of many decades, his princess, Sarah. Sarah means princess. Did you know that? And we see his response to his wife's death and what it means to walk by faith. So listen now to the Word of God. The text is printed on the back of your sermon outline if you're interested in following along. Now, Sarah lived to be 127 years old. She died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. Then Abraham rose from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. He said, I am an alien and a stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. The Hittites replied to Abraham, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. Then Abraham rose and bowed down before the people of the land, the Hittites. He said to them, If you are willing to let me bury my dead, then listen to me and intercede with Ephron, son of Zohar, on my behalf, so he will sell me the cave of Machpelah, which belongs to him and is at the end of his field. Ask him to sell it to me for the full price of a burial site among you. Ephron the Hittite was sitting among his people, and he replied to Abraham in the hearing of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of his city. No, my Lord, he said, listen to me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of my people. Bury your dead. Again, Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, And he said to Ephron in their hearing, Listen to me, if you will. I will pay the price of the field. Accept it from me so I can bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, Listen to me, my lord. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver, but what is that between me and you? Bury your dead. Abraham agreed to Ephron's terms, And weighed out for him the price he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weight current among the merchants. So Ephron's field in Machpelah near Mamre, both the field and the cave in it and all the trees within the borders of the field, was deeded to Abraham as his property in the presence of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city. Afterward, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, 
which is in Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. So far the reading of God's Word. Do you ever think about what's going to happen at your funeral? I've thought about it. I've wondered. I even was so bold once I wrote down, maybe I'd like these songs sung and this scripture read and some of these funny stories told. And, and um, Nina said, thank you very much. Did you know, John, that a memorial service is for the living not for the dead. She said, I get to plan your memorial service. And and maybe that tells you something about our marriage. (laughs) And I reminded her, well, then I'm planning yours. Well, you know, and and I made you laugh, but um, we all know that when those days really do come, They are not so easy. If you bury a parent, if you've buried a spouse, or if you've buried a child, perhaps the hardest of all, how do you do that? How do Christians bury their dead? How do we at the North Shore Community Community Church handle it when one of us dies? And today we learn. And I want you to know, today we will tell you what will happen if you die. And if you are such that this church is the place where people will gather to celebrate your life and to remember you and to mourn over you, well, we're your church family. Let me tell you today in these few minutes together. What will happen if you or your loved one should die? James Boyce comments on this passage, and he notes that this is the only time in all these chapters in the life of Abraham where we are told Abraham wept. Now, I suppose Abraham cried at a few other points along the way, don't you, (laughs) as we've studied this together? but it doesn't say he wept when he left his father and his, and his homeland. It doesn't say he wept when they sent away, he sent away Ishmael, his son. It doesn't say he wept even at the sacrifice of Isaac. But here, here it is recorded that he mourned at the death of his princess and he wept. And maybe there's somebody here who would scratch their head and say, is that what you'd expect from the father of the faithful? After all, this is the great patriarch. This is the one who knew God, who believed in eternal life, if anybody believed in eternal life, and who believed in the resurrection from the dead as he virtually received his son back from the dead, uh, didn't he? And, And this is the one who looked forward, we are told, to a better city, Why would he not just say, Sarah had a good long life, and I loved her, and now she's with the Lord. She was a good woman, and now she's with the Lord. Let's celebrate. 
But instead, Abraham's great faith actually opens the floodgates of tears and weeping. And here's why. Here's why we weep when a brother or sister or parent or child dies in the Lord. It is because faith enables us to see what death really is, that death is an enemy, not a friend. The New Testament calls death the great enemy. It calls death the last enemy. Oh, of course, we believe that death is the doorway into heaven. It is the door, the pathway across the River Jordan into eternal life. But we learn in the pages of Scripture, in the beginning of Genesis and in many other places, we learn that death is not a normal part of life as God intended it to be. It's not something that we are happy about. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And there's this curious phrase that is not in our translation, and it's in the King James Version, the Revised uh, Standard Version. It's in the New American Standard Version translation. All it says in verse 4 and verse 8 is he says, uh, let me sell me some property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. But in the Hebrew text, it says, so that I can bury my dead out of my sight. I guess the translators just felt like the bury my dead out of my sight was a euphemism for just bury my dead, and that's why they translated it here. But all the others add just that little caveat, out of my sight. And why does Abraham say that? I think it hints to the fact that death is separation, you see. And so that word, it's just one Hebrew word, but it does matter. Because when you love somebody, you look forward to seeing them. What do you say when you haven't seen someone from a lo- for, for a long time, what do you say? You say, it's so good to see you again. And it is good to see them again. But when death comes, they are out of your sight. And you don't see them again. And it hurts. Abraham and Sarah shared their whole life together. For over 60 years, they were married. And Sarah shared anxieties with Abraham. She waited with him as they longed for the promised son, and she hung in there. Abraham wanted to be with Sarah for that next great event, the marriage of their son, and to see grandchildren, but she would not be at his side to see that. And so there is this gaping hole. You know, we want the people we love to stay with us strong, healthy, happy, forever, and go on. We want that for ourselves. We want that for those we love, but it is not that way. Because why do we want that? We want it because there is eternity in our hearts. Did you know that? In your heart, There is eternity. There is a longing to be be alive forever and to be alive forever with those you love. And that is not an unrealistic fantasy. That is not, as Sigmund Freud would say, that is not wish projection. Freud would say it is wish projection. We say, no, it's not. 
It's real. We were created with that desire in us. It's a longing to be back in the Garden of Eden where our first parents, Adam and Eve, were. And death was not a part of it. There's eternity in your heart. And sin entered through the fall. And the wages of sin is death. It's a function of the curse. In other religions, they talk about reincarnation. Or they talk about the illusion of suffering. That's in Buddhism, reincarnation in Eastern Hinduism. And so death is just a natural part of life. And remember the Newsweek article? It says we are all Hindus now because we've, even Christians have begun to start to believe in reincarnation and that death is a normal part of life. But the Bible teaches something very, very different. Death is an, in, an unwelcome intrusion into life. The Bible does not teach, as you'll see in a moment, the reincarnation of the Spirit It teaches something else. So Abraham did not believe, as the Buddha taught, that suffering is an illusion. Death is neither good nor bad, it just is. Abraham was not a Buddhist, and Jesus Christ was not a Buddhist. He wasn't. He went to the grave of Lazarus. And do you remember what it says Jesus did there? What does it say? Jesus Jesus wept. The shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept with Mary and Martha as they wept. Even though He knew in just a moment He was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But He still wept. Why? And it is because He knew that this world was broken by sin and death. And it brings loneliness and sorrow. Isn't it awesome? That we serve a God who weeps at the graveside of those we love. That's our God. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ collects your tears. He knows your tears. He feels your sorrow and your sadness. He identifies with you in every trial, in every temptation. He understands you. And Jesus wept. Jesus weeps. You know... The Apostle Paul now tells us, weep with those who weep. Now, we in this church, if you've been to a funeral service or a memorial service in this church, you know we call it a celebration. And in a great way, when we get together to remember someone who has passed away, we do have a celebration. But we also have a time of grief. There is grieving. And if you die, we will grieve that you have died. We will miss you. We will miss you. Members of your small group will stand up and say, we miss her. We miss him. The pastor who is alongside you will say, we're going to miss him. We're going to miss her. We're going to testify that the world is poorer because you are gone. We're going to do that if in God's providence you reach the end of your days here. And we're going to weep. I remember the first time I ever felt permission to weep. I grew up in a fairly stoic family, 
And you know, you hurt yourself and it was, try and hold it together. Try and keep it together. Try not to cry. And I never saw my father cry. My father was bigger than life. He was, I loved him and he loved me. He was a great dad, very involved with me, a smart man, an accomplished man, and, and uh, he had it all together for in, in the eyes of an eight-year-old boy. And he never wept. He always knew what to do. He always knew how to handle whatever came his way, and that was a good thing for me to see in my dad. And then we were at the graveside of my Uncle Steve. And as we stood there, I suddenly heard this brokenness and this sobbing. And it was my dad weeping, his face buried in his hands. I miss you, Steve. I'm so sorry. And the tears poured down his cheeks. And I thought, wow, I guess I'm allowed to cry too. As Christians, it is okay to cry, to weep, and to weep with those who weep. I was at a funeral once, and and a man came up to a widow who was crying, and he said, oh, oh, Mark is with the Lord now. Don't cry. Mark is with the Lord. I wanted to punch him in the nose. Let her cry. She's lost her husband. We will encourage her, and she will move on. But if right now she needs to weep, then let's weep with her. And that leads to the next point. Because there is a kind of grief that is wrong for Christians. There's a kind of grief that is incorrect to have, improper to have. And you know what that grief is? Martin read it for us earlier. It's the grief that has no hope. And that's the wrong kind of grief. Because we bury our dead with hope. And if you die and we gather uh, and we celebrate your life and then we line up and we go to the gravesite. We go, we grieve, but we grieve with hope, with hope. And we follow the example of Abraham, believing in the promised land and the life of the world to come. Friends, if, if you know people who want to talk about reincarnation, what you should say to them is, I don't believe in reincarnation. I believe in the resurrection of the dead, that a day is coming, Jesus says, says in, in John eleven twenty five, 25, a day is coming when the dead in Christ will hear His voice. Wow. And they will rise to be with Him. And there's something a little awkward. As I was reading about this passage, I told you it's about the death of Sarah, but there's only two verses about His mourning over Sarah, and then 18 verses in this chapter about the negotiations to get the, the gravesite. Isn't it a little unbalanced? Wouldn't you expect a bit more about Sarah? After all, 
There is only one woman in the Bible that we are told to really look to. It says in Isaiah 51, look to the rock from which you were hewn. Look to your father Abraham and your mother Sarah. We are told to look and admire and follow her. And in, and in 1 Peter, ladies, in 1 Peter, when he talks to the wives, he says to them, put on the beauty not of outward adornment, but put on the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit like our mother Sarah, you know, and don't fear. So apparently Sarah was really a fantastic, godly woman. And of all the, the women in the Bible, you know, you don't, you're not told to look to Mary or look to Mary Magdalene or look to Lydia or the others. You're told to look to Sarah. She was pretty special, but there's only two, two verses here and 18 verses on the business negotiations to get the plot of land. What's that all about? And the answer is hope. The answer is that Abraham was tenacious and ferocious, not just to find a place to bury her, but to do what? To own the promised land. And to have a deed in his hand that says, at last, the promised land is mine. He wouldn't settle for a gift. He wouldn't settle for a rental. No public storage unit for your ashes, you see. But the land will be mine. He says, oh yes, we are aliens and strangers in your sight. But when Sarah died, he wanted her in the promised land, his land. And what is, it says he looked for a better country, this stranger, this alien. And what was that? It was a picture looking forward to the resurrection life in Jesus Christ, alive forever. It's you and me and our believing loved ones, those who die in the Lord, resurrected and being with him forever. Our bodies like Jesus' resurrected bodies, our souls made pure, our tears wiped away. Jesus Christ said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And he says, whoever believes in me will not perish, and I will raise him up on the last day. The old Presbyterian writer, William Hendrickson, listen to this. He says, as the land of Canaan was secured to the seed of Abraham according to the flesh, so heaven is secured to all his spiritual seed for an everlasting possession. Did you catch that? Hendrickson is right. Yes, Abraham and then his son Isaac and then Jacob and Leah, they're going to all be buried in that same cave. And this land was secured for his fleshly descendants. But the New Testament teaches us that his spiritual descendants, that is all Christians everywhere in all time and in all places, all who believe in Jesus Christ have an inheritance in Canaan land, in the promised land of heaven itself, guaranteed and secured by Jesus Christ, his great son, through whom blessing comes to the whole earth. Oh, friends, Paul 
At the end of that great chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, he says in verse 58, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Wow. You live with hope and you die with hope. And we who remain put you into the ground with hope that you will rise when you hear His voice on the last day. You know, Jesus says, do not be surprised at this. I love that. That's in John 5.28. In John 5.28, Jesus says, They who are in their graves will hear His voice and rise to life. And then He says, Do not be surprised at this. And you know why that's recorded in Scripture? Because maybe some of you are skeptical. It just might be your faith is weak. Or maybe you've just not been raised to believe Christian doctrine and you're, you're a guest or you're new to us and, and you're a skeptic. You say, that's a surprise. I mean, they're going to hear Jesus' voice. Jesus is going to say, yoo-hoo! And you will rise to meet Him. And Jesus says, don't be surprised at this. That's the way it is. Wow. Don't be surprised, my friend. This is true. It was the great obstacle to my own father's conversion. He was converted later, later in life. He just, he just thought, when you're dead, you're dead. That's the end. Worm food. He came to, say, to see that his problem was he was, tr- he was not thinking about God. He was just thinking, how could this miracle happen? It doesn't seem scientifically possible for it to happen, and he's a scientist. He says, until you understand who God is. God is the creator of life. And since God is God, of course, He can bring the dead to life. You say, but what about the bodies that were lost at sea and the sharks ate them? You know, what what if there's only one molecule left? That's all he needs. That's all he needs. Paul says earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, this is really important. How does it happen? It happens like a seed becomes a flower. It's the perfect explanation of the resurrection from the dead. If somebody says to you, well, what's this resurrection like? It's like a little shriveled, brown, dried-up seed. Do you know what's inside that seed? This gorgeous tulip. This breathtaking sunflower, these fragrant roses. 
And you are that little dried up shriveled seed, my friend. You might not like me. That, I didn't mean to insult you. I hope you, you know, the wrinkles coming. The wrinkles are coming. You're that seed. But oh, you are that germ of something gorgeous and beautiful that when that flower emerges, it will be exquisite and beautiful. The Bible says, until that day, if we bury you in this church, until that day, you are asleep in the Lord. It uses the, the it talks about, it describes the believing dead as sleeping, laid to rest in the grave, and yet they are before the presence of God, alive and awake simultaneously. I don't understand this, except I know that you and I, listen carefully, you and I live in the dimensions of length, height, width, and time. That's, we live in those dimensions, but God is not bound by those dimensions. Doesn't that make sense? Of course he's not bound. A day is as a thousand years. A thousand years is a, is a day. All I know is that the last day is coming and the dead in Christ will hear his voice and they will rise and the, and the brown, ugly, dried up, shriveled little seed will blossom into what is magnificent beauty and live forever with him. Abraham is going to see Sarah again because she's in the promised land. We will see each other again. And so as you face that most difficult of days, that is the death of a loved one, you do it with a faith that grieves, you do it with a faith that weeps, and you do it with a faith that believes, and you do it with a faith that has hope and looks to the Lord and allows His joy to come into your pain and to lift you up. I have here a letter which was written by a young soldier about to die during World War II. In one of Ray Stedman's sermons on this passage, he, he had this. This was a young man who was captured and imprisoned by the Nazis, sentenced to be executed, and writing from his prison in Hamburg on the very day of his execution, listen to what he wrote to his parents. Listen carefully. He says, when this letter comes to your hands, I shall no longer be among the living. The thing, death, that has occupied our thoughts constantly for many months, never leaving them free, is now about to happen. If you ask me what state I am in, I can only answer. I am first in a joyous mood, and second, I am filled with great anticipation. As regards the first feeling, today means the end of all suffering and the end of all earthly sorrows for me. God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. What consolation, what marvelous strength emanates from faith in Christ who has preceded us in death. Everything that until now I have done or struggled for or accomplished has at bottom been directed to this one goal whose barrier I shall penetrate today. For me, mother, father, believing will become seeing. Hope will become possession 
and I shall forever share in him who is love. So should I not then be filled with anticipation? Here he is in his cell. They're about to put the noose around his neck or to call the firing squad. He says, and so should I not then be filled with anticipation? What is it all going to be like? The things that up to this time I have been permitted to, to, to talk about, I shall now see. And there will be no more secrets, no more torturing puzzles. Today is the great day on which I return home to my Father. How could I fail to be excited and full of anticipation? And so, until we meet again above in the presence of the Father of light, I remain your joyful son, Herman. During communion, in just a few minutes, we will sing the song that's familiar to us. It's called, In Christ Alone. And in the third verse of this song, we sing, There in the ground His body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave He rose again. That verse always makes me smile. Because Jesus Christ has blazed the way. He first died. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. The guarantee that you will rise. You will rise. You who are united to Him. And so will your loved ones who believe. That's why you should urge your loved ones to believe in the Lord. You should encourage them. I have had, I've had the privilege so many times over the past 25 years to lead people to faith in Christ at the end of their life. I mean, I have, I have been alongside some broken, bitter, angry, ruined people. And I would have wished for them a better life. But I have been privileged to come into their living room or to their bedside and to talk with them about Jesus, and to recite to them, just not because I'm so special, but to recite to them these verses, these words of Jesus, he who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And then Jesus says to Mary and Martha, what I say to you, and I say it to the old person, Jesus says, do you believe this? I say, I believe this. Do you believe this? You don't have long. You may choose not to. You may reject it, and sometimes people do. But many times, after the illusion of their own strength and the illusion of their own greatness is, is robbed of them, they are willing to look outside themselves, and they are willing to gaze upon Jesus. And He does something marvelous. He gives them a gift of faith. As they see Him, they believe, and they say, yes, I believe. Now I ask you, do you believe? If you believe, then the service we have here will be a celebration. It will be great because we know where you are. You are before the face of God. You're alive forever and we're going to see you again. 
And if you partake in communion, you're partaking in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're expressing your faith, your union with Him. Do you believe? Can you say with Mary and with Martha, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Would you bow your head with me? Would you join with Abraham who believed as he bought that land, who believed that he would see Sarah again in Canaan's land? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come humbly to you. I realize, Lord, even as I was listening to myself preach, it's a strident message. It is a desperate message because we do grieve and death is a bitter pill for it is the separation from those we love. And we realize that death is awkward and painful and outside the Garden of Eden it is the wages of sin. But Lord, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Oh, we do have hope. We have hope in the resurrection. We have hope that these frail seeds planted in the ground will become glorious and beautiful flowers one day. And we will live forever with you in the new heavens and the new earth. We look forward to a reunion with our father Abraham, our mother Sarah. We look to them. We look to their greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we say with Mary, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Thank you for this beautiful message of hope. May we give hope to someone we know. As we come now to the Lord's table, I pray for those who are struggling, who feel alone, who feel the fear of death. I pray you would come and whisper to their hearts and make clear to them, you who believe, you, my child, will live forever with me across Jordan's stormy banks. You will live with me forever. And we pray this in His name. Amen.